behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the June 2019 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thanks for joining us today for another terrific conversation. My first guest is Dr. Dominic Pepper, a former fellow from the NIH Critical Care Medicine Department in Bethesda, Maryland, but now a pulmonary critical care specialist in Washington State. He's here to talk about his paper, Procalcitonin-Guided Antibiotic Discontinuation and Mortality in Critically Ill Adults, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Dominic, thanks for joining us on the phone today. Oh, thank you, Dr. Hooker. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you. I'm so glad you're here. And my next guest, Dr. Andre Khalil, professor of medicine from the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska. He's here to talk about his accompanying editorial to procalcitonin or not to procalcitonin. Great title, by the way. <laughs> Andre, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. I appreciate it, Kyle. So, you know, for our listeners, sometimes people have had multiple different backgrounds. Um, so, uh, Dominic and, and Andre, feel free to jump in. Set the stage for our listeners. You know, why are we talking about procalcitonin? You know, someone may look at this this title and say, wow, there's a meta-analysis. There must be a lot of studies, but, you know, maybe they're not aware of it and, and why procalcitonin uh, potentially matters, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I'll go ahead and set the stage. So basically, procalcitonin is increasingly used by clinicians to guide antibiotic discontinuation in both the ICU and those with sepsis. And that's pretty important because um, if antibiotics are continued indefinitely or for a prolonged period of time, you increase the risk of uh, side effects, um, of uh, drug toxicity, as well as drug resistance. So there's been a big push to limit antibiotics to those patients who actually need them. And one biomarker that has arisen is procalcitonin. And there have been a number of RCTs that have been published in the last 10 to 15 years about whether um, they truly reduce uh, antibiotic use. And probably a bigger question that people are asking is whether it reduces actual mortality. And this question arose in our clinical practice um, at the NIH and uh, during my fellowship as to whether there was actual enough data to say that it actually did that. So we did um, a bit of reading, looked at both the RCTs and the systematic reviews that had come out uh, to that date. And we realized that there were a lot of conflicting results, uh, both in the meta-analyses and the RCTs, about whether there was a true mortality benefit or reduction in antibiotic use. Um, and of concern was that a number of the systematic reviews um, only assessed risk of bias. Only 10 out of the 13 uh, RCT uh, meta-analyses assessed the risk of bias. And only three of them assessed uh, uh, the, the level of evidence. And based on the fact that there was a lot of heterogeneity, for example, people combined adults with children, um, people combined different illnesses, COPD, infection, sepsis, critical illness, and they combined both procalcitonin-guided antibiotic initiation as well as discontinuation, we realized that we needed to focus on a very specific group of patients, uh, namely those adults that were admitted to the intensive care unit that received procalcitonin-guided antibiotic discontinuation. And in our systematic review, we wanted to assess both biologic plausibility, risk of bias, and quality of evidence. So we went ahead and... I'll say, please, uh, dive in. Uh, dive in. Tell us more. Okay. So um, we went ahead and um, assessed uh, um, articles. We did a, a, um, a comprehensive literature search looking at PubMed, Embase, Scopus, Web of Science, and Central. Um, we allowed all languages, and where relevant, we're able to translate um, uh, languages to English. We followed the PRISMA statement checklist and registered our um, meta-analysis in Prospero and uh, assimilated 
um, a total of 16 RCTs of our more than 2,000 references that we checked. And in those 16 RCTs, um, we used the Cochrane Risk of Bias Assessment, and then we performed a certainty assessment using Grade Pro. Basically, what the certainty assessment does um, is it looks at the risk of bias, the consistency of the results, uh, the directness effect, and whether or not the results were precise. And our findings were uh, pretty interesting. Um, basically, we found that uh, in critically ill patients, there was actually a mortality benefit with procalcitonin, um, and that there actually was a decrease in antibiotic duration. However, in a subgroup of patients with sepsis, there was no mortality benefit. In these findings, we found it very important to stress the fact um, that they were tempered by the fact that there was a very high risk of bias across all our analyses, as well as a very low certainty of evidence. And the low certainty of evidence was driven by the fact that in patients who had high algorithm adherence to procalcitonin, um, this benefit seemed to disappear. In addition to that, there was a lot of heterogeneity in the studies, and our I-squared values uh, were typically around 80%. So based on these findings, um, we concluded that there appears to be uh, mortality benefits in critically ill patients with procalcitonin-guided antibiotic discontinuation, but that this uh, benefit has low certainty evidence and a very high risk of bias. Of note, we've performed an additional analysis called an influence analysis where we took all 16 RCTs and we systematically just took out one and see which one uh, would be driving all the results. And we found that only one study um, had any uh, had direct influence on mortality. As in, if we left other 15 in, there was no mortality benefit. And of note, in this RCT, they didn't report any baseline differences. The algorithm adherence was only between 44 and 53 percent. Um, they had a fragility index of nine, which meant that if you took nine patients who um, had uh, survived and converted them to death in the intervention group, these findings were no longer relevant. And that's important because um, when you look at the patients who were randomized and subsequently included in the analysis, 29 patients uh, were not included in the final analysis. So if you subtract the nine from the 29, you result in a big difference called an instability index. And finally, um, in this RCT, which reported a benefit, um, they actually stated in the discussion that they were found that the survival benefit was unexpected and they couldn't explain it. Um, so tying all these factors together, I think our systematic review and meta-analysis shows that there indeed is a controversy around whether procalcitonin should be used to guide antibiotic discontinuation. And I think one of the benefits of the systematic review is that, and if, if the readers look at uh, figure three, we give a framework um, for future RCTs to be conducted and for certain parameters to be included um, in the results section so that we can see whether any mortality benefit truly has a biologic plausibility. I'll hand it over to Andre to, for his editorial. Yeah. Yeah, so that's fantastic, Andre. Uh, could you uh, give us your thoughts about that when you, when you obviously read the paper and, and then hearing uh, Dominic's thoughts, um, uh, and again uh, going back to your title, to procalcitonin or not to procalcitonin? Um, I think you know, depending on someone's inherent bias coming into this this podcast, um, they could probably take Dominic's paper and run with it either direction, couldn't they? 
Yes, you're absolutely right, uh, Kyle. I mean, uh, Dominique, uh, congratulations. A beautiful, beautiful work. I love it. So uh, just uh, just to you know, give my bias here, I really uh, this is this is uh, a very important uh, work. I mean, uh, as Dominique mentioned, there has been several other meta-analyses uh, published uh, in the last few years, but I. I was very impressed by the quality and by the innovation of uh, the method they used. So, and I think uh, that was, uh, you know, something that really uh, probably led to the um, journal to commission this editorial as well. So, I think that um, speaks very highly of the paper. Um, so, you know, the and I agree with I, I think the you know with Dominic uh, uh, this at least the the report of the findings I think the findings are, are very clear so you know we see a very consistent reduction in antibiotics use um, in all critical patients in the Dominic's paper including the sepsis patients but what what was not consistently seen was the mortality reduction all over even though the mortality reduction was significant for the whole patient population in the meta-analysis, but not specifically for just for the sepsis population was, you know, it was lost. But as I mentioned in the editorial, one possibility the, of the, the, you know, the loss of the mortality benefits in sepsis because the, uh, you know, the patient, the sample size of the sepsis analysis was about half of the entire uh, you know, meta-analysis. So in some ways, you lose power, it's hard to, to know if... Uh, the loss of signal was because, well, for the biological reasons or because the sample size was reduced. But I think, you know, importantly, the one thing that I mentioned in the editorial is that uh, we, we have to focus on what, you know, what we know and what can we do with the information we have. It, the reality is, you know, I think that's with, you know, all of us that practice uh, on a daily basis, we have to translate this to reality, you know, how how we apply the, you know, all this good science to the bedside. And I think that um, one thing is very clear. You can see, and Dominic, you can uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think your study, similar to uh, the previous ones, is it's very clear that we see antibiotic exposure reduction, antibiotic duration reduction. Um, and, and, and I think that really is the most important part of what we know about procalcitonin is, 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 you know, no matter, you know, basically in the last, 10 years or so, when you look at randomized trials and the multiple meta-analysis, we do see something very consistent and hard to argue, is that the use of the biomarker can help you to reduce the unnecessary use of antibiotics. And that's really what we know at this point. I think, and, and, and to me, this is something that it's, it's not controversial anymore. I think what becomes controversial is is, as Dominic mentioned very well, is if this uh, is associated with a reduction mortality. And I think that, uh, you know, in, in, in my point of view, it's going to be very hard to, to prove any biomarker to really reduce uh, mortality because, it, you know, the factors involved on the, uh, on the mortality of these patients are multiple. Uh, and it's, it's hard to believe that you know, a single biomarker alone is, is going to do such incredible uh, benefit for, you know, from the critical perspective. So that's, I think that's probably a fair statement when you look into the whole context of the situation. But that being said, I think, you know, we, we, 
we physicians all over the world, we've been um, used uh, way more antibiotics than we should. I mean, that's just simply a fact uh, for the last um, half century or so, and that's why we lost so many antibiotics and we're still losing ground on on a lot of, uh, you know, uh, nuanced multidrug-resistant infections and so forth. So I think the, the fact that we have a tool that can help us to minimize the uh, excessive use of unnecessary antibiotics, uh, it is uh, something that really probably, uh, to me, it's, it's what really gets my attention uh, from this study and from other studies. So we have to try to focus on, you know, what good can we do with this uh, for our patients and, and go from there. So I'm just kind of uh, just, you know, setting up a little bit of a discussion. I think it would be interesting uh, to listen from Dominique, his perspective as well, because, it, you know, I think the science is very clear uh, and the controversy, what's controversial and what's not is clear as well. But I think we, uh, in, in the end, we have to um, uh, at least have uh, some meaningful translation to uh, what we do in clinical practice. Yeah, I think Andre gave. Yeah, I think Andre gave a very good overview that it's really challenging in critical care research to find any single biomarker that's going to reduce mortality, and I think that's shown in our meta-analysis as well, and several of the other RCTs that have been done. I do want to address the antibiotic exposure issue because, and I think this is where the debate rises and the controversy arises because. Andre said that, you know, this data kind of shows that um, uh, procalcitonin-guided antibiotic discontinuation reduces antibiotic exposure. And my interpretation, our interpretation of these results is actually slightly different. Um, and it's because I think when it's looked very clearly at what the intervention arm includes and what the control arm is, um, and a lot of these RCTs did not actually specify uh, what the uh, whether they had an antibiotic stewardship program in the control arm. Um, and this raises the question of, in the intervention arm, are you looking truly at just procalcitonin by itself or any other co-interventions like CRP or antibiotic stewardship programs? And you actually get a, um, it, it's an unfair comparison. If your intervention arm includes procalcitonin and CRP and an antibiotic stewardship um, program and your control arm includes nothing, um, you may find a difference in antibiotic duration, but that may not be due to the procalcitonin itself. Um, so what we would argue is that in order to truly find out whether there is a decrease in antibiotic duration, you would have to have a comparison. Um, in, in your control arm would have to include antibiotic stewardship, and your intervention arm would include both that as well as procalcitonin. And none of the RCTs that we examined actually did that. Um, so... That's how we kind of interpreted uh, the, the data that we had. Yeah, I'm, so I'm st no, go, go ahead, ahead Andrew, please. No, no, you, 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 please. No, so I, I, I agree with Dominic. I think the, uh, you know, the most of this, especially relatively not so new studies, uh, they didn't have uh, at least that, as we know, they didn't have any kind of antibiotic stewardship uh, program, but. Uh, you know, Dominic is absolutely right, uh, saying that the lack of of reporting some of these studies uh, it makes us wondering you know, what 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 was behind the controls, what was behind the intervention studies. But I think one thing that we are seeing nowadays is, I mean, I can see here in my hostel, we we have a very active antibiotic stewardship, uh, you know, program, uh, and and that's fabulous because I really, uh, you know, keep all you know all clinicians on track and making sure that 
people are aware if they're you know if they're not using or using uh, antibiotics that uh, are not appropriate for the situation. So there's a lot of feedback and a lot of uh, work from the antibiotic stewardship group. And I think nowadays, different from, I'd say even five or ten years ago, um, this is way more critical and way more common than we you know, than before. So and that is going to be something challenging uh, uh for any biomarker for the future because you know we 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 now are, you know we know for a fact that we can treat a lot of critical uh, infections uh, uh with much shorter a course of antibiotics you know so many studies have been done both on biomarkers and crp and procalcium other biomarkers and, and studies done uh specifically for antibiotic stewardship as well so we have so much more knowledge nowadays that we can safely give shorter course of antibiotics to our patients in the ICU that uh, it, it will make a challenge for any, any biomarker in the future to be studied. That's just reality. And I agree with Dominique that we, uh, you, you know, we have to have that accounted for whatever study you're going to do in the future, for whatever biomarker you're going to do, you're going to have to account for uh, antibiotic stewardship programs, presence or absence of them and what they do. It's still, you know, it's an evolving issue. It's still a lot of, a lot of growth going on with antibiotic stewardships. But the, the point is that they are becoming way, way more common than before. And I think we have to really account with you know, account for them in any any type of study going to do in the future for any biomarker, including a procalcitonin. But I think today, uh, what we the information we have, in my view, is from a procalcitonin is that it's even though I agree with Dominique that it, there is low certainty, there are a lot of uh, there is risk of bias uh, in most of the studies. What we see. My personal impression that uh, you can you can have at least from the data that we have published from my experience that you can have uh, you can benefit from uh, biomarkers such as procalcitonin and, and maybe CRP that in some other countries people use as well for antibiotic escalation. I, I you know I'm not in favor of. Uh, uh, indiscriminate use for all patients. I definitely don't think this is the way to go with any biomarker. I think we uh, we have to use these biomarkers uh, very cautiously uh, in, in situations where uh, we need um, you know a little more information to make these decisions because. You know, let's say you have a patient in the ICU uh, admitted with sepsis, improving quite fast, uh, leaving the ICU in a couple of days. Uh, you know, everything is doing well. Patient is responding well. We know what the infection is treating. It's very unlikely that uh, you're going to benefit from any biomarker, correct? So the same way, uh, you know, if, if a patient comes to the floor and, and still didn't make the ICU, but it's already improving before I come to the ICU. So these are situations that are relatively straightforward. There are no reasons, no benefits for us to really go crazy with, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of biomarkers. But I think that where now biomarkers can have a role is in a situation where our clinical information is not strong enough for us to really take, make, uh, you know, make our decisions, uh, you know, in a most appropriate way. Sometimes the clinical information is, is poor. Sometimes you don't have all the data that we need to make the decisions about the escalation. And I think that's where, that, that's the niche for uh, any biomarker, Procalcitonin or any future biomarker, where we, you know, we can get a little more information to make a, a, a you know, more proper decisions about when to de-escalate these antibiotics. And one thing I want to also bring it up for the, for all the people that are listening to this podcast is that very important to distinguish the use of Procalcitonin or or any other biomarker for diagnostic use and for um, uh, you know, de-escalation of antibiotics. This is very, very, very different. So I, I just want to emphasize that because sometimes 
I, I hear people a little confused about this because biomarkers can be used for diagnostic purpose. It can be used for prognostic purpose. Here, it, we are looking really prognostic. We're looking just for specifically for the escalation. I think the the data the data on procalcitonin and, and and honestly for any other biomarker for diagnostic issues are way way uh, behind uh, the data that Dominic presented in his paper. So uh, you know there's much the, the data on, on Procalcitonin and other biomarker for for diagnosis of sepsis or infection as you is is quite limited, uh, much more controversial and actually uh, much less useful. Uh, so we we are talking specifically here. We're not talking about any diagnostic um, biomarker. We're talking about specifically about prognostic that's going to help us to define if the patient can have antibiotic escalation or not. So I think just to clarify because sometimes these things can get a little a little confusing. No, I, agree. I mean, I definitely you agree with, that. Yeah, I definitely agree with Andre. Like on a case by case basis, individual clinicians based on the patient's clinical presentation and their course uh, should make decisions based on what's available to them. Um, but the point of our uh, meta analysis, as it developed and as we realized the day that we're looking at, is that we definitely would not want um, clinicians or administrators to look at the summary a statistic and say, well, it obviously seems to uh, decrease antibiotic duration, so we should institute a hospital program or a policy or um, some sort of mandate saying that, you know, uh, all patients should receive procalcitonin guided antibiotic discontinuation. And the reason they shouldn't do that is based on um, the additional data that we collected looking at biological plausibility, uh, the fact that uh, certain arms, uh, that intervention arm and control arms weren't uh, correctly matched so that it could actually address the procalcitonin question um, based on the fact that there's a lot of heterogeneity and a lot of inconsistency of data. And I think those nuances are really important and it may actually be a reason that in a lot of the sepsis work that we are doing, not just in procalcitonin but in other fields in hemodynamics, um, we seem to want to take the summary statistic and make a policy on it, whereas there's a lot of nuance and interpretation that needs to be made and then we end up making these decisions, and then five to ten years later, we look back and say, oh, my gosh, we made a mistake. We could have done this better, but we actually could have figured this out a lot earlier if we had uh, read the paper a lot better, understand, understood why uh, these uh, things aren't matching up perfectly. I don't know if they, have you had that feeling, Andre? Yeah, no, I think you're right, Dominique. I think the uh, you know, and and I'm glad that you're you're very cautious in your in your abstract as well. I mean, I think you're very complete and cautious too as well because I agree with you. I think the problem is, you know, we're all humans. We get very excited when we see new things. Uh, you, you know, especially something that potentially can uh, can uh, can change your practice. Uh, you, you, we tend to get excited. Just it's just kind of that novelty psychological thing that we all go through, but we got to be very careful because um, treating our patients, uh, it's a way more complex process. And just bring, and it's the same way I'd say, you know, when I teach my uh, trainees about the new antibiotics, I mean, yeah, we, you know, luckily we've had some new antibiotics coming in the last few years, even though we are, we are lacking, we are, we are, you know, we are lacking behind what we should have at this point. But, uh, you know, that doesn't authorize us to go ahead and, and get excited and overuse these new antibiotics because we, uh, we're going to just, uh, you know, we're going to just uh, destroy the, the utility of antibiotics. So, I mean, I think it, the point here is the same. It is we, we shouldn't get overexcited with any biomarker because any biomarker is going to have the plus and minuses. And, and as Dominic mentioned very well, I mean, you, you should not use um, any 
any study, uh, either the Nixas or any other studies, to justify a mandate or justify uh, something that would, uh, you know, uh, force people to uh, to use that as part of the of price. I think it has to be something to be used in an individual basis, and and that's uh, and that's kind of the the, the final statement I have in my editorial that. Uh, we should really be cautious and, and try to use that according to each patient and institutional needs. I think one of the things I was struck at, and you guys have said this, and it's also clear from reading the meta-analysis, that um, you know the the biomarker uh, by itself versus a, you know almost, and I think you're hinting at this with policy, as opposed to a substitute for clinical judgment, which is a combination of my understanding of the patient, uh, other factors that I'm analyzing when I look at this patient, as well as this biomarker. Um, I think you know that it is a slippery slope to have uh, a policy, a blanket policy made as a substitute for clinical judgment. But what I'm also struck by is that um, I, I think anybody who's designing a clinical trial for any disorder should give a thorough read to Dominic's paper on all the ways in which you can basically poorly run and or design your trial uh, and thereby you know, lead to some false conclusions. What I'm, I'm really struck by, if the idea that procalcitonin is supposed to guide us, how low uh, protocol adherence was within many of the trials, you know, and 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 it just strikes me as as, as crazy if we're going to say here's a biomarker to guide us, but we didn't really use it. We still left it up to clinical judgment. But then, by definition, it's not that valuable of a tool, is it? No, um, and at the same time, I, I, I think it's two sides of the coin. I agree with you. It probably was not as viable, but I actually would applaud the clinicians who decided that you know. Uh, my clinical judgment or my assessment of this patient differs with this test that I'm supposed to follow, so I'm actually going to follow my clinical judgment. And I think that's a really important takeaway from the RCT. So I, I was reassured by that. Um, oh, no, agree. Andre? Agree. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other side of that story, too, Kyle, is that, you know, um, I'm old enough to tell you that, you know, I trust my clinical, uh, you know, in my clinical skills better than anything else in this world because, you know, that's what I train for. This is you know, this is what I do for life. Uh, and right. so it is It is a little bit, we are a little bit of a, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, suspicious of any biomarker that's going to affect your clinical judgment. That's just, you know, it's just kind of that natural process. We we are resistant. Uh, and and I, I don't like to believe that any biomarker is going to ever, you know, be able to replace their clinical judgment because clinical judgment is a much more complex process than, you know, a single. The biomarker is going to be always a very single pathway uh, in, in a biological process. So it, it you know, just by logic, there's no single biomarker that's going to ever defy clinical judgment. But I think we have to be humble to understand the limitations of clinical medicine, correct? So despite everything we do with, you know, today you get somebody, you know, admitted to the ICU with sepsis of any source, still you're going to have, you know, something in the range of, uh, you know, 20 to 50% mortality depends where you live in the planet, uh, you know, you give the right antibiotics, uh, you know, you, you control the source, uh, you know, you give all the supportive care that you can give to the patient. Still, you know, about a third of them or a half of them are going to die. So, we, you know, we have lots to learn. And, and I think in part is because, you know, our, our, you know, the clinical information we have it probably is not enough for what you need to do for these patients because, you know, we are, we are given the right medication, we are making a diagnosis, uh, we are given supportive care, and still uh, we have a pretty high mortality of the disease. So I think that this is what we're going to, in the next decade or so, we're going to find 
uh, you know, different tools uh, like uh, omics, you know, like geomics, genomics, proteomics, and transcriptomics, things that will, my hope is that a lot of this information, these are going to be all biomarker in some ways information, but different type of biomarker, not, you know, not as uh, straightforward as uh, some of the ones we've used. But I think we're going to have way more uh, tools uh, that are going to enhance our clinical judgment. And I think that's, that's, that's my hope, you know, because I, I just, I like to believe that, you know, the clinical judgment's never going to be uh, something that's going to be uh, discarded because it's critical. But at the same time, I think we have to recognize just the limitations we have. I agree. I mean, Carl, I just want to go back to your earlier comment. I, I mean, I really appreciate your comment on the fact that I'm recommending this article for people to read on how to design RCTs. Um, but I'll just temper that by the fact that um, I definitely applaud all the uh, teams that led these RCTs. Um, it's a mammoth task, and um, I definitely don't want anyone to feel that, you know, industry versus non-industry uh, research, uh, like one is better than the other. I think each has their own um, uh, benefits that they bring to it. But the importance is that the, we just need to advance the field. Um, in addition to that, a very big thank you to uh, Drs. Cardry, Danner, Powers, uh, Ree, uh, for their assistance. Um, they really gave a lot of insight into um, their experience of pre reviewing previous RCTs and identifying certain flaws or um, mistakes that other clinicians had made that they were able to ask the question, was this address? Could we work on this angle? And it was a lot of back and forth ensuring that we had a paper that actually answered a question and that would leave uh, the reader with something uh, to think about and ponder and reflect on for the future. Oh no, agree. I, I, you know, there's 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 no such thing as the perfect study, correct? But I think when we are planning exactly. ones out, when we're planning them out, it's always helpful, I think, to look for what can be an obvious potential landmine. I think it's also I was struck by um, the, and, and I think it comes up through even this discussion today. Um, my ignorance of well, we did a meta-analysis. And, and that just to me was like a lump sum term, um, not, of course, recognizing the very broad different ways one can do a meta-analysis as far as the value you can get out of that um, beyond just hypothesis generating. And so um, that was another uh, sort of takeaway for myself personally from these two articles on just the sort of a way to even critique the meta-analysis, uh, which clearly is part of your reading process anyway. But to think about the meta-analysis uh, in its own way for its strength and weaknesses uh, beyond the sort of traditional obvious of, of you know, the merging of studies. So there was another value, I think, uh, for, for readers to, uh, for those that are listening, to grab these papers and to really expand upon it, not just on the subject, but on your sort of general approach to, um, I think, a lot of the different literature that's out there. Yeah, I would definitely encourage them to look at table two of our paper, um, the grade assessment, uh, where you perform a certainty assessment. And I think um, this is probably going to become the standard in, in the future in terms of grading meta-analyses uh, and making sure that they address all the issues and don't just provide a summary statistic which people can use to their advantage or disadvantage. Excellent. Well, guys, we've been talking for a little while, so I want to be respectful of everyone's time, listeners, and both of you, because I know you're busy. Um, final thoughts or something we haven't talked about? Or, you know, when you both agreed to do this, you said, gosh, I hope he asks me about the following, and he didn't. <laughs> so um, anything uh, that we've left out or final thoughts? 
Um, I'll go ahead. I guess, um, I guess not. <laughs> Dominique, no, it's, it's, your, it's your turn. You, you, whatever you want to yeah. say, man. <laughs> yeah, a, a very big thank you to Dr. Hogarth and Aguil for um, uh, for being prepared to share this article um, at Chess, and a big thank you to Dr. Khalil. I, I really enjoyed your editorial. Um, I think it really summarizes our paper well, provides uh, several insights, and, and I think what is interesting about your editorial was that you commented that um, the, the two co-authors, um, yourself, um, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm Dr. Lisboa. I'm going to yeah. repeat it. Uh, the, yeah, yourself and Dr. Lisboa. Um, the two of you had very opposing views about whether or not to use procalcitonin, and the fact that you're able to come together and put together a summary document um, uh, about our paper, um, I think, speaks volumes about the fact that you can uh, make a valid interpretation um, of conflicting results. Well, thanks, Dominique. I mean, I, I, I have to tell you that there was. It was a, a true pleasure to review your paper and to write the editorial. You know, it, you know, it was it was really something uh, quite uh, uh, fantastic for me. I mean, I really enjoyed it because you know, I mean, we, you know, I think it's it's like little kids when we see great papers, we get very excited. You know, it's part of um, you know being a physician scientist. It's just uh, we get excited with the things, and uh, I was very excited because not only because of the good science, but because. Uh, as Kyle mentioned very well, uh, it, it, your your findings have direct application to what we do in the ICUs, and this is the beautiful thing. So it was it was not a difficult task to you know to uh, to write the tutorial when and when I had such a good paper to write over. So I mean, it's I'm very excited. I think this is I appreciate uh, the opportunity to have this conversation with you, Dominic, and with Kyle. Kyle, thanks for inviting us for this. I think this is uh, hopefully this is going to be something helpful for all the the journal. Uh, listeners as well, because uh, this is this is something I've you know I mean it's quite important for clinical practice uh, both today and for the future. Uh, so uh, thank thanks again for for the opportunity. Perfect, guys. Thank you so much, both of you, for your time. This was great, uh, as expected, and it would be a great conversation. So thank you so much for uh, our listeners as well for uh, tuning into a great conversation. You guys have a terrific day. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.